You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Hello. 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 Big week of cinema. It, it, it is kind of a big week, isn't it? Mm. It's sort of, I've been looking forward to this week for all year, many years, ever since I first saw Blade Runner. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this week. Uh, You've gone grey waiting for it. I have quite literally <laughs> gone grey. I would love to go back to me 20 years ago and say, hey, guess what? In 2017, there's going to be a Blade Runner sequel and a new series for Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah. Hang in there. 2017 is going to look after you. But if they, if they said that, if, if you found that out in the, like the mid-early 80s, you would have been like, what's Twin Peaks? Yeah, well, so, so 20 years ago. I'm t- oh, 20 years ago. <laughs> the maths right. works. Hang on. <laughs> As we have maths. said, tonight, the sequel to one of the most beloved and influential science fiction films of all time, Blade Runner 2049, will be discussed. We're also going to take a look at the high-energy New York crime drama Good Time. But first, we're going to take a look at another film that will soon be screening as part of the Jean-Paul Belmondo retrospective at the Astor Cinema, courtesy of the Elliot Yance Francais Classic Film Festival. We looked at one of these films last week. Belmondo, of course, is that iconic French star of the 1960s, 70s and 80s. Um, he had numerous directors he often collaborated with, uh, including directors of the calibre of Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Melville, and both of those directors are represented in this retrospective. But tonight we thought we'll take a look at another film that will be screening, and that's the 1964 adventure film That Man from Rio, which was one of six films Belmondo did with director Philippe de Broca. The Man from Rio was a huge commercial success at the time, and it saw Belmondo playing an airman on leave who ends up travelling to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil in hot pursuit of his kidnapped fiancée, and he gets tangled up in a search for three mysterious statuettes that hold the secret to the, the location of hidden treasure. Uh, Francois Dolirac, uh, who tragically died young three years after making this Francois film... Dorliac. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> play, play that again, Therese. Momentarily. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was close. Yeah. Um, she co-stars as Belmondo's fiance. Well, Not Emma, quite as feminine. I. <laughs> yeah, no. Or, or French, or correct. Um, who, who was it? Was keen for us to do this one? I think that was you, Emma. It was me. That man from Rio. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I must admit, I was curious because often when Belmondo's career is summarised, Breathless and That Man from Rio are the two films that are that are often used to sum up his career, and they're two vastly different films. I know. And this was a, a this was a huge film though at the time. I think it was uh, in terms of the French box office. Fourth highest grossing film in France that year. That year? Well, that's decent, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, well, I think know, that's decent. It, it came after things like the latest James Bond film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this is what it's kind of riffing on a bit yes. of a bit of Bond. 
Um, although Bond, by way of, and although this would not have been its influence, it felt like Bond by way of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, it was so Raiders of the Lost Ark. There was a poison dart yeah. in it too. That I oh well, that the statuette and oh well, the poison dart I kind of felt was more get smart. You know, <laughs> there was a bit of that there. Yeah. Not quite as funny, but slapstick, definitely slapstick in the. Yeah, it's play- a lot of this is played for laughs. Oh yeah, absolutely. To, to point out the obvious. I don't know whether <laughs> yes. That's what goes with slapstick. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I it, I don't think it really translates as a hilarious film these days, although it's more of a, a you know, a curious film and a, and a highly entertaining film. I kind of felt that it was a film that was powered by um, uh, transport. It was trains, planes, automobiles and boats and then another boat and then another plane and then a... <laughs> And it was literally this kind of road, air, sea trip. It just this there were the movement in this film was quite astounding. And even it's interesting that it was all that man from Rio. There was even destination in the the title. And there's something about going to Rio at that time that is just so sixties. Like Rio feels like it. It just it has the color that suits a sixties movie. It has I don't know that tropical island feel, that exoticness. When my baby smiles at me sort of thing <laughs> even though that was later but it just all um it, it it all works so beautifully but it's this is this is not a film that i think uh is going to is going to test anyone mentally or intellectually it's light let's just say oh it's so much fun i hadn't hadn't seen this before and um i knew bill mondo had quite a reputation as a uh, an action adventurer sort of star, uh, it's preferred genre. Apparently. Yeah, this, yeah, this is the kind so. of stuff he liked doing the most. Hated all that pretentious <laughs> bullshit he did with the new wave directors. This was, <laughs> well, what really he was all physical. about. How much Very physical. physical. Work. He ran a lot. I mean, Thomas, I know how much you love Tom Cruise running, but yeah. how is Bill Mondo <laughs> running in this? Right. I was actually going to say I think Bill Mondo rivals Tom Cruise, yeah. except Tom Cruise kind of does these blade mechanical things with his arms. Bill Mondo <laughs> does this beautiful kind of gangly flailing arm run. It just looks like you don't know where those arms are going. They have a mind of their <laughs> they own. They might take runs. you out. Yeah. You yeah. Be careful. May have been slightly sped up once or twice as well. Yes. There was, but that was curious in itself. It was. I mean, there was so much play with almost um, a, a bit of language of the new wave. There was some really curious editing here. Some of it seemed partly naive. Some of it seemed a bit jump cut influenced, a bit from uh, Breathless. Uh, but other times it was just for effect, for sort of silent film trickery effect, sudden little jumps whereby play for, for gags. There's so many great visual gags um, and one great biffo scene. It's just fabulous <laughs> stuff. But the choreography of it almost doesn't matter because the editing's nice and jumpy so that just quite where bodies are within the scene itself. It's not so important, just the mayhem is the, <laughs> is the thing and it's quite glorious. Hijinks. I think that's oh. a word that really fits with this film, yeah. hijinks. But then there are some extraordinary stunts which don't rely on any editing trickery. Um, I mean, Belmondo seems to go under a boat at one moment. I mean, just under one. And, and a lot of it looks like it's him. I it really does. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And Incredible. work, um, harkening back to silent film days, he's up on um, a construction site in Brasilia, which had barely been built then. Mm. It was so new. And that architecture is extraordinary mm. when it gets to those that, that part of the film. And he's up there on, on scaffolding and planks and setting up whole lots of pratfalls for 
the baddies pursuing him and of course for himself and it's just quite glorious and actually a bit scary and genuinely suspenseful because it really does seem to be him up there and that that plane scene it actually had a plane chase yeah i don't think i've ever seen a plane chase quite like that in a a film out of out of actual warfare (laughs) i haven't seen something quite like that yeah no i know what you mean yeah you you can't go past those practical effects that you get from these old films like you know there was no trickery there because this is 1964 Mm -hmm. this was only a year after the film we spoke about last year uh, last year (laughs) this is only a year after the film we spoke about last week which it's so different it is so different i mean that kind of careful controlled film noir aspect of le doulo compared to this which is really big budget color movement action um I also thought of Raiders of the Lost Ark and all the mm, Indiana yeah, Jones too. films, and I do wonder. I mean, I would. I'm sure Lucas and Spielberg had seen this film and, and, and borrowed some of its energy. Mm. The other film that really made me think of though was Romancing the Stone yep. Yep. and also yep. Jewel of the Nile, mm-hmm. because especially when he teams up with his fiance again and, the, and they become a bit of a, a double act as they take on the baddies in South America, they've got a similar kind of chemistry to Michael <laughs> Douglas and Kathleen Turner, and um, you know, as someone who adored those films when I was younger, I really yeah. enjoyed seeing that in this context well, too. Well, similarly, when he gets a little local sidekick, that, that kid is amazing and busts some incredible moves <laughs> that's up right. his extraordinary house. That was that, kind that of so is, strange. Yeah. What was his name? Sir Winston. Sir Winston. Mm. Yes. But yeah, it, was, so, it was kind of like that politically incorrect. I think this is a thing, watching a film like that in a modern context, because it was kind of like, look at the happy people living in the favelas. Yeah. They might have no money, but they're rich in spirit. Yeah. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Put their lives on a whole. Yes. to entertain the foreigners. To yeah. do a little dance. Yeah. <laughs> well, he reminded me of the character in whichever Indiana Jones film it was. There really was a kid called Short Round. Wasn't yes. Short Round yeah. in Temple of Doom. I kept yeah. on calling yeah. him Short Stack. I always yeah. get it confused. Yeah, yeah. something like of that dynamic the there. <laughs> yeah. The kid was amazing, actually. He was quite a presence. Uh, this was a hoot. This, don't, let's not forget the swing-in soundtrack either, which is just uh, Georges um, Delarue. regretting I didn't take any music from it, actually. But um, the, the soundtrack's really fun, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's just so yeah. of that era and so perfectly upbeat and jazzy with a hint of Tropicalia in there as well and it's just perfect. And there's also, just curiously, I think this film does take a bit of a, has a bit of sly commentary on the nature of colonialism and industrialisation especially Mm -hmm. the deforestation I mean it kind of Mm. ends with almost a very bad taste gag but I think it's basically saying this natural environment that these people live in is being obliterated Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it was quite a sour punchline, I don't think that was played for laughs exactly. I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. The music choice mm. was weird. Yeah, and it, was, mm. it was a very deliberate point, though, to show us these are people now who don't have a home anymore and, you know, we, we can see the construction vehicles destroying the forest that they used to live in. Mm. But mm. it's sort of a, yeah, it's a weird kind of, oh, well, shrug yeah. at the shoulders at the camera. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I That's all, folks. <laughs> it's trying to make a point, but possibly not in the best of taste. Yeah, exactly. But we, we have to say, we have to point out that France, Francoise's daughter, please again. Really? I can't say. Yes. I can't believe I've been replaced by her. Well, this, this, is, <laughs> this is very yes. Blade Runner. Yeah, but yes, is uh, she is absolutely wonderful. If people don't know her, she is the older sister of Catherine Deneuve. And um, she was actually. Um, 
uh, died at the age of 26 in a in a car, in accident. car accident. So yeah. she was really the the star that was on the rise. Um, Catherine was sort of in her shadow and only rose to prominence um, outside of her. I mean, you you you're a big fan of the uh, Jacques Demy film, The Young Girls of Rochefort. Which, Me too. Yeah, and that's yes. the first thing I'd seen mm. her in, I think, and it yep. just blew my mind. Where they actually play sisters, her yep. and Catherine Deneuve, and um, I think uh, watching. The, the person I was watching the film with, uh, uh, this, the, that man from Rio, was ca- kind of ca- completely captivated by watching her on the screen and said, oh, my God, could someone be beautiful than Catherine Deneuve? So she does have that incredible quality, especially when they... And, and you could see that the director knew that when he got her to do that beautiful little dance, mm, you know, that, yeah. that wild, frenzied, free dance, which was, you know, just perfect. She's, she's stunning. I mean... Objectively, I think she's incredibly beautiful, but she also has this really great energy she brings to this film. And the same with um, the, the Jacques Demy work- film as well. Yeah. Um, uh, and a really nice sense of comedy. Like she, the, she knows how to, she pitches the performance just right to make it really, really fun. She's not just the p- pathetic kidnapped girlfriend. She has lots of her own moments. Well, her and, and, her Bel- and Belmondo Bel- riff off each other so nicely. Yeah, yeah, so beautifully. I really felt that energy was was lovely. Lovely. It, it was that kind of. Um, it was the the Maxwell Smart and ninety nine sort of thing. Although she was much more animated than that character, but um, that that similar rapport. It was yeah. It's, it's, it's the similar rapport to yeah, Romancing the Stone with mm. Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. Mm. That sort of reminded me of mm. her untimely early death was a real tragedy. I think she she yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sad we don't get to see more of her films. Mm, mm, exactly. We have been discussing That Man from Rio. That's screening very soon on the 13th and 14th of October at the Astor Theatre as part of the Alliance Francaise Classic Film Festival's presentation of a Jean-Paul Belmondo retrospective. You're listening to Thomas Emmer and Cerise here on Plato's Cave. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Blade Runner 2049 is the sequel to Ridley Scott's 1982 science fiction neo-noir classic that starred Harrison Ford as a cop in futuristic dystopian Los Angeles, whose job it was to hunt down illegal lifelike androids known as replicants. Set 30 years later, and now with Sicario and Arrival's Denis Villeneuve in the director's chair, this new film builds upon the story, production design and themes concerning what it means to be human that characterise the original film. Ryan Gosling stars as a new Blade Runner, who, like his predecessor, has the grim job of tracking down replicants and, to use the terminology from the films, retire them. This new film sees him investigating an anomaly he discovers on a routine case which ties back to the events from the original film. Other notable cast members include Jared Leto and Robin Wright, plus lesser-known actors Anna Diarmas and Sylvia Hoeks, who also have key roles and I suspect will be actors we see a lot more of in the future. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it's a spoiler to say this, but Harrison Ford also does pop up in this new film. It's all he's over. In, he's he's, in he's the on posters. the poster. I think we can... He's in the poster. Although the screening that um, that we were privileged to go to, one of the first uh, screenings, Cerise, mm-hmm. um, had a, a big uh, big. 
card that came up on the screen um, before the film started from Denis Villeneuve saying that we must be very careful not to spoil the experience mm. for anyone watching this film, which I thought was quite intriguing. I think maybe that in itself uh, helps build up the mystique because I, I don't think that there's anything necessarily remarkable about the story pop plot line. Well, I must admit, I, I normally think mm. paranoia over spoilers is a bit of a wank. Yeah. And I think people get silly about it with the wrong topic. I mean, people worry about spoilers with superhero films and it's just moronic. The good guys are going to win. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, um, but with this film, I must admit, I was so precious about shielding myself from knowing anything about what happened in this film. Uh, and I guess I really enjoyed seeing it all afresh without knowing it. Having said that, I actually don't think there's anything in the film that would have, that if I'd known in advance, would have prevented my enjoyment. Yeah. So I think it's more that this film, where this film is quite remarkable, is in its propagation of the original Blade Runner world. Mm. And it's um, managing to, I mean, it helps that the film, we're actually uh, moving in a linear timeline. So we're going from, that was, uh, how many years ago? Was it? 30. 30. Mm. And now we're 30 years on and that that works in the film so it's we're able to have newer technology and everything it actually works within the timeline um but it is also that atmosphere this felt like it was um made by people who really loved the first film and i think that's what kind of seeps through every frame um visually and in the sound design and I think that's uh, a thing to actually make note of the sound design is so beautiful and wondrous I mean you could hear some of it from that music track that Thomas just played with that canon like booming that comes through so you've basically everyone has to see it in a really good cinema because yeah. that sound it's it's more of a soundtrack as as Vangelis's score was that's more of a sound design soundscape as opposed to music um but this is just a perfect continuation of it i couldn't believe how satisfied i felt to just be in this world and that's what is the that's what what makes this a great movie yeah i was mm. so happy I, mm. I was so so happy with this yeah. film yeah. and it wasn't just a kind of derivative rehash which i think we've we've had with the recent star wars films mm. uh this really felt like it built on the original and expanded it in a way that didn't compromise anything about the original and it's really hard for me not to be fanboy about this film because I, I normally do try to distance myself and treat the film in its own right and not get precious, but this is one of my all-time favourite films, which I think 90% of film fans will say the same thing, you know. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people are very fond of this film, of the original film, but um, I, I really liked how it did feel like a film set 30 years later in that the the air had gotten murkier, it was ever so, it wasn't quite as clean and crisp as the original film. There was that sense of the, the pollution had gotten worse, it was more it was denser there is new technology now at play and it's used really well in terms of character and story mm -hmm. but i also like the fact they continued what they did in the first film and what a lot of science fiction films forget to do which is recognize the fact that people don't always use the most up-to-date technology <laughs> we, we interact with ancient technology and old pop culture and mm -hmm. so there is stuff in this film that looks like it comes from 1950 because that character probably is poor and and doesn't have the latest technology and you know there stuff that looks like it, it, it's been hanging around since the original film. So I mm. think on that production design level alone, it's just superb. Incredible.
Yeah, yeah the production design is fabulous. I, I like that this film really took its sweet time, just really reinforcing that it was uh, an expansion upon that universe established so vividly all those years ago. The dystopian side of things feels elevated. Uh, the, the cityscape is it just seems to go on for a, a vast <laughs> distance uh, and, and upwards too and is grimy except for all of the projections, which um, you know, if I have a, a one quibble with the film is that the projections haven't got any less, so let's call it, say, patriarchal or male gazy. You know, there's an awful lot of lady folk cavorting around in those projections and uh, uh, an incommensurate amount of beefcake. But that is what it is still like. You think about it. I think uh, that was very deliberate, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah. It, no, is it, I mean, I yes, think, it is deliberate. It's no accident. But yeah. is I, it, um, I, I think that, for example, if you look now, and I've, I always find this really remarkable, you look at music videos, music videos have become, become so much more male gazy in this in the last decade than they ever were. Um, so I think that that's kind of appropriate to have that well, in that This is 30 technology. years into the future. You thought it might have resolved a little <laughs> by then. There might have been some progress. Come. Come on, yeah. really? Well, yeah. Progress? What I mean, are you talking there's about? There's the dystopia. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, magnified. It, it is dystopia. I mean, actually, I, I kind of see what you're saying. It would have been nice to have seen a bit of equal opportunity objectification. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, But, you know, but this is a film that is about, yeah, objectifying and devaluing humanity um, and, and, and reducing the human body to the sum of its parts and, and treating what would otherwise look like a human as something without a soul. I mean, there's even dialogue in this film about, Very much so. about yeah. people functioning without souls. So I think that objectification theme, yeah, is very pronounced. I think yeah. you make a reasonable point, though. Yeah, we yeah. could we could have used some of some contrast to all the um, all the girls in short well, dresses. It, yeah. it is curious, not least as um, our protagonist Kay, mm-hmm. Kay which is yeah. a very uh, Kafka esque name. I should mm. add immediately. Yeah, I'm sure that's deliberate. Yeah, yeah. I don't doubt it. Yeah. Um, uh, reports back to Madam. Yep. I mean, the the, the, the patriarchy is not in effect there, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting given all the imagery that's projected about this cityscape. But she's you know, there are some real strong female authority figures in this film and um and a, a bit of ass kicking going on there as well i mean uh what's the character's name the uh, i can't remember the actress's name because i wasn't familiar with her but she was one of those exotic names you wrapped your tongue around so elegantly before thomas yeah i, I know the one you mean who works yeah. who works for the, oh, no, no, the sevilla hoax yeah, yeah who yeah. Is, is a model i think before she turned out yeah yeah yeah, yeah. who works for the wallace corporation yeah. which is the which has replaced tyrell as the replicant building yes company yes under the uh aegis of that um, of a very building creepy company. Jared, Jared Leto. Yeah, Jared Leto, mm. who mm. isn't an actor really, I think, that's in favour at the moment. I think you could have it isn't an actor. He's <laughs> <and we could laughs> moved on. He, he's won he's an Oscar. Replicant. What are you saying? No. One and off. Um, an abomination, that. <laughs> yeah. I thought he was good in this, and they yeah. used him sparingly. Yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, we're spared looking into his eyes, so that's a, a, a help. <laughs> There's a lot about eyes in oh, this love. movie. Oh, love. The character's name is Love. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's he, sorry. So yeah. Wallace's oh. kind of replicant woman who goes out and does all these dirty work for him his name love mm. yeah there, and again there's, there's dialogue in the film about yeah the irony of that i mm. think there was mm. a line where he, was that he must like you he named you or um, i'm not yeah, sure yeah, whether he, it was that character yeah he must like yeah, you he yeah, named yeah, you love yeah yeah, yeah. but um no it's it, it carries on with all the the metaphorical stuff that goes that went on in the first movie without repetition as such there was a you know the play on the eyes eyes being windows of the soul all that sort of thing nostalgia big play on nostalgia as well um not as much as i reckon they could have done i, I think they they showed considerable 
restraint? I, I think it was just right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, as right. In, yeah. yeah, just yeah. right. As, but I felt all of that sim- symbolism and imagery and recall was was just right. Yeah. Um, See, with the Star Wars films, I, I got exhausted by it and got bored with it, where this film, every time they did a, a recall to the original yeah. film, I got a bit of a shiver down the spine. There's even a very overt music recall towards the end, which oh, they yes. do, which I, I kind of started crying in that scene. Yeah, well, yeah. how could you not? Yeah, yeah. Really? It was beautiful. <laughs> um, there's, a, you know, even uh, a character that looks very much like Pris in it. Yes, the, um, the Daryl Hannah character from yeah, the first film. Yeah, yep. exactly. Um, there was. It's interesting though. I've had I had someone comment that they felt that it felt very misogynist because all the women were um, sadistically killed or sadistic women. What do you think of that? I'm still pondering that fact, and yeah. or, or fact that not fact, I should say, of that uh, theory. Look, I, I'm, I'm going to be the the, the, the classic yeah, yeah. guy now who, who who says it's not misogynist, but um, I think they oh, were. No, you they, can. I think yeah. they were they were complex characters with a lot of agency, and I think that's far more important. Yeah. Um, you know, the the, the nearly, I mean, so Ryan Gosling obviously plays the protagonist, but all the major characters after him are all these very interesting female characters who, on the surface maybe look like there's not much to them but as the film un, un, un evolves you get some really complex characterization mm-hmm. especially with his kind of you know his pocket girlfriend joy which is very similar to the scarlett johansson character in her you know this virtual I felt lover that, she yes. became a really complex thoughtful character i thought she was probably um one of the most well-rounded characters yeah. um also a very curious uh relationship rob without saying too much about it i just couldn't help but but um, think of things like Lars and the Real Girl, which was Ryan Gosling's film. Um, yeah, good call. Yep. totally different take on it, yep. but surprisingly similar. But it, it's this film about being detached from humanity and it's like, you know, yeah. th- there's, now a ste- there's now a step what below the replicants yeah. in, in this, this, this very grim social order as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, not just that, but no one uh, can have confidently rely upon memory. Memory is something that's mm. just, uh, without going into too much on this particular point, but we're talking about nostalgia being such a key element to this film and it's not just a certain visual element to riff off the previous film but just uh, there are many characters there grappling with memory, what it is, what it is to have memories and how reliable are they uh, Mm -hmm. under any circumstances and uh, how much should one invest in them in order to decide how one engages with the world and what sort of missions one goes on and I think that's where the real profundity is in this film once we get past occasionally questionable titillatory scenes or, or perhaps sadistic violence uh, perpetrated by or against women. There's the really interesting stuff in this film, I think, really concerns memory, which it does in so many films. Mm. Cinema is so invested in in memory. I mean, it's all about trapping people on screen and in, in a sort of celluloid aspect and uh, becoming fetish items. Yeah. Mm. I think that the, it's going to... People will be hard-pressed to see a better-looking film and sounding film for quite some time. Uh, it felt like a cinematic nirvana. I really felt immersed and it wasn't mm. a 3D experience. It wasn't immersive in terms of a new media or anything like that. It was just a completely immersive experience. It's something I didn't expect And when we were deciding which films to cover this week. I, I Little did I expect I'd find anything to, to bring 
uh, uh, that man from Rio and the Blade Runner <laughs> sequel together. But the architecture in Brasilia in that film is beautifully dystopian and not a million miles removed from certain architectural elements in the Blade Runner sequel. It's extraordinary architectural landscapes. Um, and how good was Jean-Paul Belmondo? I can't even say his name. Jean-Paul Belmondo in Blade Runner. No comment. <laughs> it was easy to track him down. You just look for the gangly guy with the, 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 way, the, the, the flailing like arms. That. Like, yes. yeah, that's the replicant. Yeah. Um, I thought this was just gorgeous. I was. It was. It's that kind of feeling of relief. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. joy when you see something that you're so precious to and, and attached to. And it's interesting. There's been a bit of debate about well, how deep is this film though? It looks beautiful, but is it going to be? Is it going to be you know as deep as the first film? And I, I'm going to sort of tentatively say I think the first film is enormously influential and introduced a lot of very interesting philosophical ideas to broad audiences but I don't know if the first film is necessarily that deep as, as uh, such Well can we even say yeah. there is a first film because it went through three different releases, each yes. of us put yes. a quite different spin on a very central issue Absolutely. of yes. identity yep. uh, which this film then runs with in a particular way and which perhaps leaves certain things still a little ambiguous Well in fact there's a line from the very first version of Blade Runner where um, no I'm, I'm just I just realised what I was about to say was incorrect okay. I was going to say the, 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 the term skin job is used a lot in this new film and I was about to say that only appears in the first version of Blade Runner but that's not true at all it appears in all versions it's only the first version oh, okay. you get the voiceover explaining what yeah. that term means yep, yep, yep. but um, yep. you pick it up pretty quickly in this film that it's, it's, a, it's I noticed, highly actually, insulting there's interesting <laughs> in the um, uh, the in the, the reference the gender references, they use boy and girl rather than man and woman a lot, which I thought was quite interesting. It's kind of this idea that because you're looking at men and women in this film, but they are kind of boys and girls because they're born as, uh, you know, yeah, as the, adults. Mm. And they used it a lot. The Ryan Gosling's love interest in it used boy and girl um, in her rhetoric hell of a lot when, when you hear that when you when you kind of you know you, you jump on something you'll hear it just continuously throughout the film mm. when you watch it again I think it's very much that yeah. part of that theme of well, they're, 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 these are almost infants sort of yeah, yeah that, well they are play yeah because exactly. they, they haven't lived as long as the rest of us despite exactly. what their physical form suggests oh okay I don't know I, 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 I haven't <laughs> got anything more critical to say I just thought this film was, was stunning um, you know, I, I don't think it's as good as the first film the first film has a particular magic through mishaps and weirdness I think this is a cleaner more clinical film yeah. so I don't think it has that kind of accidental genius that the first film does, but boy, it comes close. It doesn't try and do too much. For my money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is Plato's Cave <laughs> on 3 R. We've just been gushing about <laughs> Blade Runner 2049. 3 R. Good Time is the new film by independent American filmmakers Ben and Josh Safdie, whose previous film, Heaven Knows What, was covered here on Plato's Cave back in 2015. Both Ben and Josh directed Good Time, with Ben also co-starring, and Josh also credited as one of the writers. Set in New York, the film stars Robert Patterson as Connie, who, after a botched robbery, is distraught by the news that his mentally disadvantaged younger brother Nick, who is played by Ben Safdie, has been 
arrested and hospitalised. Determined to save his brother, Connie has to think on his feet as the problems he faces get increasingly out of control. Uh, Barkhad Abdi from Captain Phillips, Jennifer Jason Lee, and star on the rise Buddy Duress also appear in the film. Was this the first time you guys had seen a Safdie Brothers film? They're, they're sort of darlings of the the film festival circuits, and this is sort of their their biggest film to date. Getting it's it's, it's going to get a small cinema release from this Thursday onwards. No, I've seen the other one you mentioned. Um, we were on the show. Yeah, it yeah. was the one set in, right in the thick of a, a junkie scene, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was, it was a, a story of a, a young woman who yeah is a, is a heroin addict, yeah. and the woman who is in the film playing the addict was actually the woman yeah. whose story the film was yeah, based it was quite on autobiographical and, and they're, they're very big authentic. on street casting yeah. and being very keeping I mean, it real keeping it real i mean the, mm. this film they've got a few big name actors in there which is the first time they've really done that with robert patterson and jennifer jason lee yeah I, I i felt some of that same sensibility pervading this film even though it does have these a couple of big name cast members even if jennifer jason lee's not really seen on screen for a tremendously long amount of time um but yeah this is this, this they, they seem to have a gift for putting you right in the thick of things uh part of it's just a extensive use of not quite extreme but you know close-ups that are pretty damn close uh and lots of bodies in motion and um often in flight uh well, at least in this case of um what, what is it constantine connie yeah connie yeah. sure for yeah constantine it is sure for constantine yeah, yeah. yeah. Short, short yeah. For constantine. yeah. yeah. curiously of greek extraction i mm. presume he's meant to be yeah because um, uh nikos nikos nikos, yeah. nikos is yeah. his brother that's so, right yes. yeah mm. that seemed to be and just, the grandmother yeah the grandmother yeah but i don't think that added anything exactly it was just a thing they were greek he, uh, yes yeah it, it mm. had no cultural significance no no, not, no. Not that i could pick up on. no no um He's not a very sympathetic character. No. You know he's going to lead his brother astray immediately that he uh, pulls him out of this interview um, session he's having at the beginning with what you presume some sort of psychologist or therapist or someone who's trying to uh, help, I suppose, this clearly uh, mentally challenged young man who, who he's got something of this, this, this brute hulkish physicality. Uh, you just sense that that's going to come into play at some point and that, yes, with his brother leading him astray, there'll, there'll be somehow that, that, um, that hulking mass will be deployed. But this film does confound a lot of expectations as it goes. It just is, It's one of those wonderful downward spiralling narratives that it, it's, it's, there's something quite inexorable about it. Um, you pick up on that really early on and then it's just a matter of how many different pickles is he and perhaps his brother <laughs> going to get into? How will they get out of them and will it just keep escalating and will it end as badly as I suspect it will? <laughs> and occasionally with a few very darkly comedic laughs along the way because I, I chuckled at possibly some inappropriate moments. I can't oh, be no, sure. It's, it's, it's does definitely has a sense of humour. It's, well, it's not like watching a Jerry Lewis film let's say but it's it, you definitely the absurdity of I think some of the situations you you, you kind of have to laugh and when you realize when you look at the group of people who are pitted together in certain circumstances and then this amazing story that a character who's all of a sudden is just thrown into this film decides to relay is just absolutely hilarious in its it, you, like how has this happened in one night I guess it is New York so many things can happen 
happen like that in New York. But um, this this film had the feel to me of if uh, Martin Scorsese was a young man now making films, this is something he would make. It just, oh, yes, if he was an unknown and had no budget. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is this is what that felt like, and it's this it's got this narrative as um, Cerise was saying, where you know they it's just pickle after pickle. It's more like in terms of the the narrative, it's. Uh, two steps forward, three st- steps back constantly, yet the actual energy of the film is just this this film that rockets, you know, propels you at this incredible pace and holds you with this amazing intensity right from the very start. Well, the soundtrack really helps. I know you just played a quite elegiac track yeah. there, Thomas, yeah, which, which isn't characteristic of the film ca- as a no, whole. No, no, that, no, that didn't really represent the, the, the score at all, which is sort of electronica and very high energy. Yeah, it it's, not, it's not doof, it's not dance no, music. No, no, no. It's just tense. It it reminded me of um, Tangerine Dream's work on Sorcerer, yeah. the William yep. Friedkin film. Yeah, very yep. much like that. And, it and a was bit Goblin too. Amazing. And yeah, yeah, yeah has mm. that has that edge to it, um, which added so much. I love that scenes like from, right from the start where, you know, you have these seemingly quiet, although tense scenes with those incredible close-ups and then this driving electronic score. And it just was, I found, I found this film to be absolutely exhilarating and so exciting. It was one of the films this year that has made me gone, wow, I love cinema. God, cinema's good. You forget once in a while that, do you? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. No, we <laughs> can get jaded, it's true. Yeah. I know that film. I'm just sort of just realising it's very rare to do a show where the two new releases are films that I, I loved more than the classic. Yeah. Like that, I mean, that man strange. from here is fine, but I thought Blade Runner was sublime, and I think this is sublime. The, the, yeah. the, the energy in this film was amazing. And, and when, when we finally get to the end credits where we hear that track I played that Iggy Pop sings on, again, I, I sort of broke down. I got quite weepy, and I think it's because the final image that plays out over the credits is very moving, the subject they show you there um, but also just that tension release the, mm-hmm. the sense of it's, it's, it's over and it's just so, I can I can relax now and just all this emotion kind of poured out of me that I've been hanging on to because this film is so tense mm-hmm. so visceral, so exhilarating um, I think it's a great character study too of this kind of level of criminality where he has this sort of level of street smartness to a degree <laughs> stay with me on this <laughs> and 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 the ability to, to act quickly and to quickly think of solutions but he's also he's also so stupid and just makes <laughs> so many dumb mistakes but but not because just because he's in a panic and because you know he has, he's never been obviously given any opportunity in life to to develop critical thinking, to, to not get himself into this situation. You know, he, he just keeps digging himself further and further into this, this hole and there's something um, disturbingly fascinating about watching that. Yeah, I think uh, it was interesting because there's definitely the love between the brothers. That's, um, that Which is established feel. so early and, yeah. that's, that is and that was a important. key ingredient, isn't it? It is really important because you don't know much about their background except we do see this character of a grandmother that's brought into it but we don't know what's happened to them in terms of their parents or anything like that but there's obviously this this idea that and and I think it's communicated really strongly that they're they're all they've got the two brothers uh reliant on each other in fact the um Robert Robert Patterson's character Connie is probably more reliant on his intellectually disabled brother than the intellectually disabled brother is on him yeah Nick, you yeah. know he's the one that sort of keeps him anchored 
opened and hinged. But uh, there's a beautiful still that I noticed. I think it's a poster that, that, that I don't know whether it's the main one, but it's a poster going around the traps of this film, which is Robert Patterson running down the street at frenzied pace. And I think it's uh, one of the best uh, poster stills I've seen this year because it really shows the film, what the film is about. It's a breakneck film. It it travels at this level of energy that Robert Pattinson himself, um, I, I really hope he wasn't chemically assisted because this poor guy looked, you know, he was pupils dilated, freaking out, you know, this that it's an exhausting role to play. Yeah, he looks desperate and exhausted. He does yeah. and he keeps it and he maintains it and that and there's no relief in this film. Mm. No relief at all. He keeps this level of energy up through the whole thing and I think it's something to be applauded and I know you've been a fan for a long time, Thomas. Thank so, you for acknowledging that, yes. Emma. I, 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 I called it many years ago that Robert Pattinson was going to was going to come good and then some. And he sure has. Yeah. Well, yes. you just think about this role and even the Lost City of, of Zed, just the, the transformation he's made into both films. Like, he's unrecognisable. I, I think, yeah. you know, if, if, if you look at the, the Twilight films and in this one, it's and not the same guy. Of, childhood of a Leader that we did this year. Oh, which oh, I still yeah, never yeah. saw, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was one, well, he played a couple of characters yeah, in that. And mm. that is an even different... And, and, and Lost City of Zed, um, seeing him in that, I know we're not talking about that, but that shows where this is a this is a film that is centres really on his character. His character is the one that's pushing it the in whole time. time. In good time. Mm. But in Lost City of Zed, sorry, um, I'm com- confusing the issue here. But, yeah, going back to Lost City of Zed, that was where he played a secondary role and he could sit back so easily and not consume the whole film. Um, he's just the type of actor that does it. He's not that superstar ham that takes over the whole thing. Well, I, I think he and, you know, Chris and Stewart, I mean, mm. it's worth comparing them because they both did the Twilight films together, have made really intelligent choices in the last few years of their career. I mean, that, and they've obviously both looked for roles that distance themselves from the teen heartthrob Twilight thing. Oh, and, yeah, you can and understand why. Again, I mean, look at the films we've looked at hers this year, per- Personal Shopper and Certain Women. I mean, I think they, they've both done an incredibly good job of breaking free from the mould that they could have stayed in for the rest of their careers mm-hmm. and probably had perfectly fine careers but wouldn't have been artistically very satisfying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah I, I was floored by this. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, just before closing, I mean, we should acknowledge just the look of it too. There is a beautiful mm. 70s throwback uh, colour palette employed throughout it and a grain in the image. That makes me really happy. It looks like it was shot on 16mm and blown mm. up. Was I it? think it may have been because yeah. I know that's that's a big thing with these directors. Yeah. That's something I should have looked up before well, there's we started. A massive, there's a massive credit at the start of the film for street casting. Yeah, yeah. Like, which I thought was really interesting. And there was that character of the security guard uh, the, that gets... Uh, um, that was a really interesting moment in the film because I thought that that t- changed my idea of that character, of the way I felt about him. I think, yeah, it, yeah. you know, that kind of coming in and out of sympathy. There are established actors in this film, but mm, they, they mm, blend mm. in so nicely. They do, to they do, the, yeah. I mean, the, the, the other character, we won't tell you how, that there is a major character. This is the Buddy du- Duress. Yeah. I mean, his character, we won't tell you how he comes into the narrative because it's quite fun when you find out how, but but he's very much a street cast. He, he's acted in a few films now, but he's one of these guys <laughs> who is sort of doesn't come from a traditional acting background, yeah, and yeah. you wouldn't know it watching his performance in this film. It's really strong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, it's a very nice note to end on here on Plato's Cave. We talked about that man from Rio. I'll give you the details again. That's screening on the 13th and 14th of October at the Astor Theatre as part of the Alliance Francais Classic Film Festival's presentation of a Jean-Paul Belmondo retrospective. Blade Runner 2049 is on wide release, courtesy of Sony Pictures, and Good Time will be on limited release from this Thursday, courtesy of High Gloss Entertainment. You have been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Reese Howard and Emma Westwood. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.